five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Today is December 21st, the winter solstice, and also the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. For the Space Economy podcast, it is the beginning of our annual three-part winter series where we feature content from other creators. This year, we're featuring three episodes, all related to NASA's return to the moon with the Artemis program, and all are intertwined in the space economy of today and tomorrow. The first episode is on NASA's Viper Rover, a precursor science mission that does double duty in providing new data that will help scientists better understand the Earth-Moon dynamic, while at the same time providing key data to those interested in using lunar resources as part of a future lunar economy. The content originated from the Future in Space Operations weekly teleconference. The guest speaker is Dan Andrews, Director of Engineering at NASA's Ames Research Center. The presentation that goes with this podcast is available on our website. Before we start the presentation, though, here's a message from our sponsor, Circo Canada. We'd also like to thank Circo Canada and our other sponsors, as well as our loyal Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible. With 40 years' experience in the space sector, Circo offers a full range of operational and engineering services. Through long-standing partnerships like the one Circo enjoys with the European Space Agency, Circo contributes to programs like Copernicus and Onda, supporting open data and user experience. With best-in-class capabilities in Earth observation, Circo offers a wide range of space and ground support, from data capture to data handling to data exploitation. For more information on Circo's space capabilities, visit circo.com backslash na backslash Canada. Okay, now on to the presentation. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was great to hear that um, introduction of everyone in attendance. I know a good number of you are uh, paths have crossed in the past, whether it be in uh, Resource Prospector, uh, which was uh, sort of the origin basis for the Viper mission or, or other activities. Um, so good to see you all. Um, I'm going to be giving a Viper overview, which is the Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. This is a mission that is run out of the Science Mission Directorate. And um, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here after the uh, long and storied road uh, that we've been on to get to this, this point. I'm on slide one, and now I'm moving to slide two. if my advance button will work. There we go. So on slide two, uh, you can see that I just have a graphic there, and there's a mission animation for Viper that's available online. I wasn't going to uh, have us all go watch and listen to it, but I thought I would put it in for those people who are not so familiar uh, with the mission. You could always go out there on YouTube and see it uh, after the presentation. And slide three. This is, uh, I think, the latest swoosh chart. That's the official NASA term for uh, charts like this that are uh, painting a picture of the landscape for an endeavor that the agency is going after. In this case, uh, the, the chart is focusing on Artemis, as you might expect, 
and some of the activities that are going on um, along the lines of supporting uh, the general idea of, of bringing humans to the moon uh, sustainably. I remember early on when I was briefing the administrator of NASA on the Viper mission, uh, he was really a, quite a big fan of Viper because of the sustainability part. We know it's quite a feat to be able to return humans uh, to the surface of the moon. But as most of us in this community also know, it's quite a feat to be able to sustain that over the long haul. And so we put certain things in place to help make that more likely to happen. And uh, Viper is one of those uh, pieces of that puzzle to help uh, assure that that happens. So you can see Viper there in the yellow hoop on the diagram. Um, this is intended to be a bit of a chronological chart, left to right. Nearer term on the left, you see LRO up there already, of course, and then the future out to the right. So you can see a rough idea of uh, what's expected. On to slide four. Why Viper? So on slide five, you see the big picture of lunar resources, and there's I've seen many, many different presentations about this story, and I'm not trying to match or uh, be orthogonal to any of them. But uh, this was my diagram that I put together to try and paint a bit of a picture of how the landscape looks. Um, I may not have included everything, but uh, I think it helps me make the salient point. So first of all, on the goals going across the top, I think it's fair to say that there's an evolution of, of activities and complexities and participations that happen from early observations of an area where you haven't even really fully mused what all is possible, all the way to, in this case, with respect to lunar resources, the idea of having bulk production of resources for use and um, uh, marketplaces and so forth. And that's a really um, big range there, right? Big turndown ratio there. So a lot of things have to happen in between. So the way I've broken it up is, you know, you start with observations and then then you start thinking a little more tactically about prospecting, but still at an orbital level. Then you do some ground truthing um, to calibrate, make sure what you saw from orbit is right or to mature your thinking. Uh, then you start getting into prospecting where you're actually interested in uh, understanding the nature in the areas that you're thinking of going. That, of course, leads to resource mapping. And then you start, once you think you know where it all is, you start early demonstrations of how you might get at the ore, the material, whatever it is. And then ultimately you go into full uh, production there. Um, I put some submissions along the bottom there to just, I guess, illustrate a picture. I like to show Clementine as one of the earlier missions there, a DOD mission in the U.S. Um, that had a number of different experiments on it and studies. And so that one first started posing this strange idea that there could actually be hydration in the polar regions of the moon. The lunar prospector um, actually did some mapping showing elevated hydrogen, but still not able to confirm that it was uh, captured in the form of water ice, but that certainly was a potential outcome. So, uh, of course, giant periods of time occurred between each of these, which is, again, frustrating for us in the community. Um, LRO and LCROSS launched uh, together as a co-manifest. Chandrayaan was right in there with that timing, too. 
Um, but you could see that in the case of LRO and LCROSS, their, um, their purposes were not overlapping entirely. Uh, LRO continues to be an amazing orbiting asset, lunar orbiting asset, uh, for doing observations and prospecting. But LCROSS had a very tactical purpose. I was the project manager for that mission of, uh, first of all, doing a low-cost mission demonstration, which we successfully did, and then asking the, uh, asking to answer, looking to answer the fundamental question about is the uh, hydration trapped as water ice? And so we impacted into the Cabeus crater and were actually able to, frankly, touch the water ice, saw water vapor, saw water ice crystals and so forth. So we answered the big binary of yes, so apparently there really is water ice there. But, um, I can say this because I was the PM for it. It was kind of a, a, a big dumb binary answer, meaning that was a good answer. That was a really important answer. Um, but now you have a thousand questions coming out of it. And so it was natural that there needed to be another mission that would follow on, um, and maybe missions that <clears throat> would help to quantify the nature of things a little better. And that's where my little map of arrows across the top helps, right? Um, we need to actually do a little bit of further ground truthing, but really need to do prospecting and even mapping. And then from there, um, NASA and other space agencies will continue to send missions there, uh, commercial industry as well. Uh, under the motivations that they have. But it's a really interesting time right now, bridging all the learning of the past, all the measurements of the past and calibrations of the past, and then looking forward to do the uh, early mapping so that we can see if there is opportunity there. This goes back to that sustainment part. Um, you could sustain humans on the moon for a long time, bringing every single thing they need from the Earth. It just will be expensive and logistically trying. If there's anything that, could, that you could do to actually live off the land, that's obviously going to be of great value. <clears throat> Moving to slide six. So why Viper? Um, specifically, let's start talking about Viper. Uh, direct science measurements of polar volatiles. So LCROSS kind of ground truth that touched the water ice there. Um, but it, the nature of the plume that came up and some of the measurements that were made uh, enabled quite a bit of interesting science to come out of it. But it was based on uh, a series of extrapolations and so forth because, in effect, we threw a bunch of material up uh, off the surface and took measurements and made some um, uh, assessments of that. But now with Viper, we'll actually, at human scales, at the scales of meters, uh, be able to get the lateral and vertical distribution and actually understand the physical state and composition of those volatiles, um, which obviously leads to you know, enabling research into lunar resources. There's the science side of things. There's the uh, more economic side of things, marketplace side of things. And and so from my opening example of sustaining humans on the moon, there's obvious value there. And frankly, ever since the RP days, resource prospector days, which Viper was built on and obviously in that activity, um, we need to know if the ore that's there, in this case, the lunar water volatiles and others, are worth the effort. Uh, we all have opinions about that. We all have opinions about where it's located and what's the best way to pull it up. But you really need some ground truthing even on that concept. Is this going to be too expensive to be worth it in the next 10 or 20 years? Or is there actually some real great opportunity there that could be used within the next 10 years? 
Well, mission like Viper is looking to uh, help address that. On page seven, where will Viper explore? So what we decided to do, and uh, Tony Colapreet, the project scientist in the community, had discussed this a fair amount, which was how do you how do you quantize the problem, right? How do you break it into actionable chunks? And so we created these four ice stability regions, ice, uh, ISRs. And uh, what we have are kind of colloquial names of surface shallow, deep, and dry. And so in the case of surface, that's an area where we believe that ice could be stable, thermally stable, on the surface, you know, not underneath any regolith. And so our, our current conjecture there is that that would only happen in thermally shadowed regions. Uh, there are temporal frosts that uh, many know about that come and go and so forth, probably not very much of a concentration for a usable ore, but who knows? Let's let's go see. So uh, surface areas are, are likely to be just PSRs, but we'll see. Shallow is what we define to be the range in the first 50 centimeters of the surface. So anywhere from just subsurface to down to 50 centimeters. Deep would be the next 50 centimeters uh, from 50 to a meter. And then drier areas where we think it is highly improbable that water ice would not be stable at all in the first meter. So too warm, sunny dirt, uh, and, and so forth. But again, we may think that uh, we need a mission to actually go uh, and survey that. So Viper goes and tries to hit all four of these ISR areas in, in multiple occurrence uh, in order to get enough of the coverage to be able to actually create resource maps. Moving on to page eight, uh, slide eight. So again, people in the community understand this, but this is a really tough problem. I mean, the moon's tough in general for a bunch of reasons, but the polar regions are, are even tougher. Um, what's interesting about the moon is equatorial regions generally share a 14, you know, Earth day sunlight dark balance, right? Because of the tidal lock with the Earth. So over a given month, about half the time, a equatorial uh, area on the surface will be in the sun, and about half the time it'll be in the dark. So pretty, uh, pretty easy to plan around and and so forth. And then you get the uh, thermal consequences therein. What's interesting about polar regions is that with the lunar libration, there's actually uh, what we refer to as seasons of light and dark, where generally a south pole region, say is in the sunlight for a period of time, say, you know, three-ish, four-ish months as it's uh, waxing and waning. And then as it's going out of view, there's a period where neither pole is getting a whole lot of sunlight, and then the opposite pole comes into the sunlight. So it's a similar period of time. And so it makes for these uh, interesting and peculiar opportunities, especially if you're a solar-based mission, solar-power-based mission, uh, to be able to get some work done. So we're playing with that, and of course, local topography, since these are polar regions, the sun is striking uh, those areas at a pretty tangential angle, uh, which means you have local topography creating these very long shadows, and with no moderating atmosphere, the temperature extremes are extraordinary, and frankly, the lighting conditions, uh, polarization is extraordinary. Full bright sun to the blackest black, space because there's very little scatter going on, we think. 
And so you could see in one area that we're exploring on the South Pole, exploring as a potential candidate site, uh, is the Nobile, Nobile crater region. And so Nobile is uh, one of many, many permanently shadowed craters, regions uh, down there. And you can see on the left plot, um, temperatures as cold as, say, 30 degrees Kelvin. Um, and that's fine. You could design a system to go that cold, but then you also have to be able to tolerate, since you're naturally a sun-powered mission, um, high temperatures in that range, too. So you can see it's a, a turndown ratio of nearly an order of magnitude that your system has to be able to uh, work with. So a tough engineering challenge. On slide nine, you see some of the uh, science specs, uh, real high level. We're nominally planning for 100 plus Earth days. So understand that that doesn't mean we're surviving lunar night. If you were an equatorial region, yeah, you're surviving, say, 14 days of darkness. But in the polar region, you're, you have different opportunities. And so it's all about how you navigate the shadows and how you run from the shadows. <laughs> because again, things are moving so quickly. Shadows are moving quickly. And so you have to play that into your plans uh, as a mission. Uh, we're carrying uh, four instruments, really three instruments and a drill, a neutron spectrometer, a near-infrared spectrometer, and a mass spec, um, which is similar to the resource prospector and, and then a one-meter drill. Uh, that's very similar to the resource prospector instrument payload with one notable difference. Uh, we actually had an ISRU demonstration on the resource prospector a mission that was uh, referred to as WAVE. And inside that WAVE instrument was a mass spec and a gas chromatograph. The mass spec that we had in there is the mass spec that we're bringing on Viper. So that's called M-Solo. You'll see a little bit more about that coming up. Uh, detectable hydrogen concentration, half uh, weight percent, uh, drill depth, um, of a meter, you saw that already when you we were talking about the ISRs, right? First 50 centimeters, second 50 centimeters. Our intention is to do, uh, say, 30 to 40 drill sites. Um, as we know, just from looking for ore materials, whether it's gold or oil or whatever you don't here on Earth, you don't just go around drilling and hope for the best. It's too expensive and um, uh, not the smartest way to work. You instead apply heuristics. You do measurements from above, uh, measurements from below, and then you wisely choose where you go and confirm with drilling to actually truth it, right, to calibrate it. So we've got a whole plan in place for doing that. But over the period of that, say, 100 days, we're expecting that we'll have 30 or 40 drill sites. Um, our, our, our minimum is 18. Dark survivability, notice I don't call it night survivability, but dark survivability is 70 hours. And that is a strong energy-driving case for Viper. Um, how much time we can work in a PSR, which is the next one, PSR working duration, about eight hours. And that's modeled against a certain energy profile of activities. So that's actually thoughtfully considered. Those two cases um, are competing with each other for who's actually driving the energy capability of the system. And um, I may get into, when we get into clips a little bit, some of the drivers there, too, because we're being delivered to the surface and we're on a very novel uh, mechanism that I'll describe in just a bit. Distance traveled, probably around 20 kilometers uh, um, in total. But, again, we haven't 
uh, lock down the surface plane just yet. That'll happen in CDR. On slide 10, you see some of the Viper performance specs. We actually refer to Viper as the surface segment. So the surface segment is the rover plus the instruments. So um, to use the proper terms, this is the rover surface segment performance specs. We're sitting at around 430 kilograms of the rolling mass. Our allocation to be brought to the moon is bigger than that because uh, through this commercial means that we're uh, getting our ride to the surface of the moon, uh, we actually have to allocate the rover separation system as part of our overall mass. Um, about 450 watts max power. It's actually when you have the sun on a corner, where it's illuminating uh, two of the solar array sides um, versus 320 watts if you're just squarely on the sun with them on the side. Uh, communications X-band having to deal with the round-trip latency, of course. I'll talk more about that coming up. You see the nominal dimensions and wheel diameter. We're explicit steer with adjustable suspension. You really got to see some of the videos on this. Uh, at the very last slide of this presentation, I have a URL there that goes to YouTube, and I will actually have you click on it and go there when we get to that slide so that I can talk you through the video. But it'll take you out to your web browser and it might ask you if it's okay to to follow that link, but that's coming up. Prospecting speed, 10 centimeters per second. Uh, doesn't feel very impressive. It's actually faster than many of the robotic, uh, including Mars missions, but not as fast as some of the big dogs. Uh, the human transport, uh, you know, means on the moon, the rover, and, um, uh, and a couple others, but, uh, but it gets the job done. Waypoint driving. Uh, we can't teleop. You can't just command it through joystick because there is latency in the system, unacceptably high. But we also don't have to behave like Mars, where we just throw it over the fence, send it there, and come back some period of time later and see what happened. Um, I will get into that more. And uh, we are camera look ahead, obstacles. So you can handle pretty good obstacles there. And the cold environment, we already chatted. So slide 11, talk a little bit about the operational plan of Viper on to 12. First of all, start with our ride. Um, the CLIPS program within NASA is a commercial lunar payload services program. And uh, what that program is, is trying to see if commercial industry is ready, including some of the new space players, uh, to actually provide really a service. Think of a FedEx uh, type of service. Uh, another example might be an, an Uber, right? A ride share kind of thing. Um, to, to deliver you to orbit. In our case, deliver you down to the surface and so forth. And so this is a big experiment. Never been done before. There are some earlier clips missions that fly before Viper, like in 21 and in 22. Uh, but Viper is the big dog for sure. It's the biggest payload and the most expensive NASA payload to have been selected to go on clips so far. And uh, so this is an astrobotic who was selected for this opportunity. It was competitively selected. This is from the astrobotic, you know, technology press kit. You can see a representation of the Viper rover going down um, one of the ramps on the Griffin lander. And uh, we're targeting late 2023, about the November time frame, in all likelihood to begin that mission because, again, that is being driven by the South Pole 
solar opportunity with that whole migration going back and forth, right? We can't go at any time, but we have to go at a very specific time, so that's built in. On slide 13, you see a uh, kind of a simple diagram, but I think it, it illustrates a bunch of facets of the surface ops. Um, Ames Research Center in Northern California, which is where I'm from, is where the Mission Operations Center and Science Ops Center is, and uh, lead on science. But science actually, and the measurements they're in, the instruments are actually coming from a number of places, including, by the way, not the formal instruments, but even things like motor torques, drill torques, um, even even looking, using the cameras, looking to see how the wheels are engaging with the service. There's a lot of ways to get derivative science off of this mission beyond the obvious four big instruments, right? Uh, JSC is where the rover build is is led out of, NASA JSC in Houston. And uh, the rover software is coming out of Ames. There's a partnership there. And then at Kennedy in Florida is where that M-Solo, the mass spectrometer, uh, comes from. You can see the waypoints illustrated here. Um, reminds me of the Charles Schwab commercial from about a year ago or something. Um, and the idea is that you, as a driver, you set a waypoint out there, say, four and a half meters away, and then you allow the rover to autonomously go and navigate it live while you're sitting there watching. But it's it's navigating through local obstacles and other things and, and safing if needed uh, to address that latency problem. Then it stops at that waypoint, and you, as the rover driver, you survey what's going on, you make an assessment, and then you go to your next location. Excuse me, Dan. Yes. Excuse me, Dan. Um, I should have I probably should have asked this a couple of slides ago when you were talking about temperature. But what is the temperature that you're trying to maintain the inside of Viper at, say, while the sun is shining on it? What, what are you shooting for? Yeah. So. Um, What's interesting there is we have something like 13 thermal zones across the entire body of the rover. Right. Right. Uh, so, for example, the wheels are expected to be at some level, and then the actuators they're in, and then the body chassis, and then the core, um, the core inside uh, of the belly of the rover, obviously where you want to keep the things that need to be the warmest in there, is actually nominally. Um, I, I don't have the exact number, but it's going to be relatively cold room temperature. <laughs> oh, okay, there. so so we're not so talking not, about so so we're not talking about cryogenic electronics or anything like that. You're you're good to go. That's we're that's, on the low end of that of of what I would call kind of a ambient earth uh, low end temperature, but that can go lower. And of course, we allow it to go lower when we get into hibernation and some other functions. But you're not functioning at that time, so it's not an easy question to answer in a binary way. It has different modal conditions. Let, let me let, let let me ask an extension of that question. Where it does get very cold, uh, the thermal zone around the wheels, for example, was there any special engineering that was required in order to take temperature? I mean, the wheels are probably near 40k or something like that. So exactly. Uh, yeah. So again, it goes into those zones. The wheels are going to be basically an ambient uh, temperature. They're going to be very cold. But then we immediately implement some levels of thermal isolation going from the wheels into the actuators, which are also going to be very cold, but less cold than the wheels and, and so forth. So we use electric heaters, of course, and then all of that across the entire system gets rolled up into our overall energy density 
that we're we're targeting. Okay, that's great. Thank you. What size, what size batteries do you need to to provide the heating for that seventy hours in the cold? Yeah, so the um, energy density of the batteries is has been a really hot topic because batteries tend to be heavy, and so you want to have them low and you want to have um, as few of them as you can get away with, but then you have these challenges of that 70 hours and eight hours, 70 hours of darkness survival and eight hours of PSR operation. Um, they're uh, lithium ion batteries. We actually have the heritage of them being originally developed uh, for use on ISS. So we're not starting from scratch and then we build them up into what we call super bricks. And you can imagine that's just this massive brick of well-packed batteries that have protections built in, all that stuff where we're leveraging the heritage. And then our current design is to have four of these super bricks uh, mounted inside of a structure inside the bottom of the rover as low as we could get it, right? Really, really low for CG. Now, what's interesting about this is we want lots of battery capability. We want lots of energy density in there because it opens up the possibility of what we can do when we're out of sun. It also enables us to not worry about being oriented on sun uh, in as rigid a way because we have so much energy density to store, right? So it allows us to move, even though we could crab walk, to move in ways that are less restrictive with respect to our power source, the sun. So, this is a topic of actual negotiation right now and discussion with respect to our CLIPS partner and our mass allocation uh, so that we could try to maximize the energy density even as we go forward. We just got out of our PDR, and we are presently designing to handle more super bricks than we can currently afford with our mass budget. So we're putting four in. That fits in our mass budget. But if as we go forward, we find that our mass margins are not being consumed, you know, through maturation as fast as maybe they might typically be, that mass margin savings as you get closer and closer to the CDR and then SIR and so forth might be able to be turned into more batteries. You don't want to be redesigning at that time. So we've already designed in the ability to pop in more batteries, which will immediately, directly change the capabilities of the mission without changing the design. What's the mass of like one one super brick? Is that a large chunk of the total vehicle? Yeah, one super brick is nominally ten kilograms. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you. Yep. Uh, so I'm on slide 14, and I talked just a little bit about the prospecting and subsurface activities. Uh, I stole this uh, diagram from Rick Elphick, who's the uh, PI for the NSS. What you're seeing here, um, uh, nicely and simply shown here, is is a, a, a cut through the surface here, uh, both just uh, you know empty regolith and then regolith that's hiding either ice bearing layer or maybe even surface frost. And of course, what happens is galactic cosmic rays are coming in, energy from the sun, wherever it's coming in, strikes the surface, and of course that releases a neutron flux coming out of the out of the soil. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that when you have ice-bearing layers in there, it changes the flux, and so your divining rod can be a neutron spectrometer that see, looks for changes in that, and that becomes your, mix my metaphors, your bloodhound to actually say, oh, there's something likely down here. 
and that can allow you to uh, consider uh, drilling or doing a mapping activity prior to that. I'll talk more about this in the upcoming slides. But that's where NSS that is hanging off the front of the rover uh, is really guiding our way. And despite us having the best plans possible going into the mission, it's going to be the thing that's going to be changing our plans as we go forward. We've actually used NSS on the Earth by having a uh, gamma source out on a proboscis that's sitting out in the front of the rover so that we could create a source that's greater than what's ambient on Earth and actually tried it in different environments, out in Mojave and other places, and uh, it works quite well, actually. Then Nervous and M Solo are also sniffing at all times, and, of course, they're um, surficial, right? They're not looking down a meter into the soil like the NSS could, but they're looking at surficial conditions. So, uh, for example, Nervous can see frosts, but Nervous can also see materials that are brought up through excavation with the drill. And then, of course, M-Solo can see sublimation that's happening. In fact, even just a warm rover standing in place over an area will be subliming, certainly frosts, maybe other things that are close to the surface. M-Solo will be able to sniff that. So we've got a real nice multifaceted instrument suite that, frankly, is pretty robust to failure because there's so much overlapping of capabilities uh, that, you know, that, that gives us a little better hope in a super challenging place like a polar region. Now, slide 15, uh, I think, gets into a little more of the goods of how we're going to operate, and then the next slide, too. Um, and then I should probably pick up the pace just a bit. So you can see the front-end part, the astrobatic part of the mission. This helps you see what part we're getting commercially, right? So we're literally a payload taking a ride, and they design, the commercial party designs all those boxes that you see there. That's our current understanding, but truly, that's theirs to figure out. Then once we roll down onto the surface, you see that kind of green and yellow area there. That's all us. We've separated from the lander. We don't care what happens to the lander anymore. They could go do their own thing. We don't want them to take off and hop. <laughs> that could be problematic, and they're not. Um, but you get the idea. Two separate, two separate missions, and then you have post-flight. What I want to show you in particular, you can see surface operations at green bar, about 100 days. But in there, we have multiple lunar days. And so you can see we have legs and safe havens and legs and safe havens. The way to think of those, and i got a diagram coming up to help explain it, is the legs are areas where you're actually doing productive work, right? You're actually operating, you're doing science stations and so forth. So those are the ones you care about. Then you got these safe havens. And what safe havens are, I didn't talk about this earlier, but I, I talked about how the sun comes and goes on, you know, 14-ish day centers in equatorial regions. Well, what's interesting is even though the sun can still come and hit you um, in polar regions for longer periods of time because of the seasons, the earth is still rising and setting. And since we're not an uh, autonomous mission, but a semi-autonomous per the um, you know, piecewise um, waypoint steering that we're doing. We have periods where we are not in view of Earth, which means we are not operating. That doesn't mean we're out of view of the sun, though. And so you can see the traverse legs design, uh, laid out there in that chart. Uh, but the safe havens are areas where, as the name implies, you're safe, you're power positive, you're good, you're warm, uh, but not too warm. Uh, but you can't operate because you're not in view of the Earth. 
Then those little gray bars that you see within the safe havens, and those are all a function, how long those safe havens are, and how many periods where you actually lose the sun because of shadow, vary wildly by your mission design. Right? So these are just representations here. I'm not saying on the third safe haven we have two of them. It's just trying to illustrate. So in those safe havens, we have to be able to hibernate. So you can see the eight hours and the 70 hours that I was referring to earlier. Now you can see how they apply. Uh, as the mission goes on. So uh, another way to look at this is a lunar day is, by definition, one traverse leg and one safe haven, even if the length of the safe leg, the length of the safe haven, and the number of hibernations vary. We have some mission plans where we actually have no hibernations. You can imagine those are very desirable. Sun never goes out of the view while we're out of view from a comms point of view. That just makes you feel better. So we're, we're considering all those things as we're uh, designing the surface plan. From a mission success point of view, and therefore risk, um, our current plans show that we can achieve our minimum mission success before the first safe haven. Imagine how huge that is. Before the Earth sets from a standpoint of comms, um, we uh, have checked the minimum box. So if nothing else goes right from that point on, you at least got your minimum success, not having to, you know, go away for a period of time from an Earth point of view. We also are looking like we could achieve full mission success, so check all the boxes that the agency wants of us by the end of Lunar Day 2. Okay. And then Lunar Day 3, and if we have four, uh, before the polar region simply falls out of sunlight and we freeze, uh, offer contingency time, or if we're having a good run, we can get more science. So on slide 16, a little more details on that. Um, so all that you see here is the legs, right? You see we start on the left as a safe haven. We're not operating then. You see we end on the right as a safe haven. So this is a leg in all this blue and yellow. And you can see that uh, to subdivide it, we have what we call rails driving. Rails driving is when you're, it's as if you're driving on rails. There's no diversions. You can't get off and you're going full speed. So the idea is that you don't need science in there and you can actually go full speed uh, in the interest of getting to the science station. The science station, those blue chunky areas represent areas of interest based on orbital maps, based on your planning, so forth. In there, you're going to slow down, go at yellow speed, and you're going to have some drill sites and so forth. And those are, those are ISRs. So that might be a sunny area. That might be a, um, that might be a, a, a first 50 centimeter kind of area, a second 50 centimeter. It might be multiples just by the terrain. And then you can see I have, uh, you know, an example there, this isn't necessarily be, but jumping out to go get a PSR, right, and just illustrating there. So this is just giving you a feel for how the flow would work operationally. Now on to 17 and slide 18, this is a little more detail on the rover itself. On, I should correct myself, the surface segment, which is the rover and the instruments. This is a little bit out of date. We actually have a new update where the solar arrays are larger. We specifically did that in order to increase our um, flexibility on the surface, right? Because with smaller solar arrays, you're having to rely, your ability to stay power positive is reduced, 
you reliant on the batteries more often, which could drive you to have to charge more often. If you can get bigger solar arrays to fit on there, and we have, well, then you're able to be more productive more of the time, decreasing your overall mission risk. And there's some other changes, too, that aren't quite right in this diagram anymore. But functionally, it's about right. You can see the drill in the middle of the rover poking out the top, but it actually drills shooting down to the middle. You can see a situational awareness cam. Of course, we got lights up there um, and our, nav, our stereo nav cams, but we actually have cameras shooting out all four sides and below. You can see hanging off the front there in that gold MLI is that, that bloodhound, right, the neutron spectrometer system. And then Nervous and M-Solo are underneath, and that is because they are specifically interested in what's going on under the rover, namely the cuttings pile coming off the drill. They also need to be protected from sunlight, too, so they're, they're kind of operating in the dark down there. So uh, pretty interesting rover. Looks very different than rovers you're used to because this one has to do different things. This is not a rocker bogey six-wheeled rover like you're used to seeing on Mars. We have to be able to move in all directions and further we have to actually be able to articulate each of our wheels independently. So you can think of them as having shoulders on each one, which means we can move our CG around, which means if we get a wheel stuck in a puddle, so to speak, uh, we could actually lift that up, move our CG out, and roll out of it on three wheels. Right? So it's, it's very powerful. You run the risk of complexity being a problem, but it's very powerful in an area that, frankly, we don't really know what we're going to find until we're down there. On slide 19, I just touch a little bit on some of the differences. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's an important concept because it's really easy to just make uh, hand-wavy comparisons between different domains, right? So let's start in the, the red circle there, Mars rovers, right? Given that it's Mars, it has the distance that it has, has an atmosphere, um, so it it's not really expected to have real-time interaction because it's got a gigantic latency problem despite its sheer distance. And so it's designed for a longer duration, and uh, it's much more asynchronous from a commanding and, um, you know, finding what we discover through telemetry coming back. The other end of the extreme would be human-level interactions. So... Um, Basically, you know, ISS, say, operations, which can be pretty teleop, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, less than two second round trip time, direct teleoperation, pretty structured environment, much more operational in the traditional sense of that. And Viper and lunar robotics is kind of in the middle, not centered in the middle, definitely biased more towards uh, teleop than an eight-minute round trip to Mars. But it's not good enough for teleops. So you have to behave differently than both the blue or the red circles, and you have to navigate what makes sense there. So um, that's part of our problem and what is distinctly unique about Viper, but also about lunar missions in general. On slide uh, 20, um, you can see the science manifest with a little bit better detail. Uh, these are the four instruments. So you first of all have the Trident drill. That comes from Honeybee Robotics in Southern California. Um, and I told you already it, it, it has a penetration depth of a meter. What we tend to do is we bite in 10-centimeter chunks. So we go down 10 centimeters. We fill the flutes. We bring it out, and the tailings come up and, and so forth. And then we go get another 10-centimeter bite. Um, 
And uh, then as the tailings build up, we've actually done testing at Glen in their dirty vacuum changer chamber, U13, uh, that it actually preserves the vertical stratigraphy of what it's being what's being brought up. And since M Solo and uh, Nervous are staring live, sampling live what's coming up, you get a nice vertical core, effectively uh, core measurement uh, without actually having to core. And uh, that carries all sorts of other engineering challenges if you did. There's a neutron spec that's uh, led by Rick Elfick out of NASA Ames. The near-infrared spectrometer, good for surficial stuff, can't see underneath it. Uh, so can uh, uh, see things like frosts, uh, but also those excavated materials. That's uh, led by Tony Colaprida at NASA Ames. And then finally, the M-Solo instrument. I told you that was part of the WAVE instrument back in the RP days. That is led by PR Genie Captain. Um, out of Kennedy. So a really good suite. I don't have it in this presentation, but we actually have a matrix that shows where different requirements are met by these instruments and shows just how very robust loss of an instrument or impairment of an instrument is, including even the drill. Uh, it would be a big blow to lose the drill, but um, it, it still is a worthy mission, even if something were to go wrong there. On slide 21, this just helps people ground on what we're looking at here. You can see the red dirt along the top and gray dirt along the bottom, so uh, Mars and Moon represented here. And what I find kind of interesting is looking at the specs, uh, you know, Sojourner, uh, 5 centimeters a second, uh, MER, 5 centimeters a second, Anomaly, uh, MSL, 4-ish. Um, we're at 20 in sprint mode. Uh, that's the rails driving I was telling you about. But when we're actually doing measurements where NSS is actually working uh, effectively, uh, M-Solo, Nervous and all that, is 10 centimeters per second. So our science clip is 10 centimeters per second, and our top speed is 20. So it gives you a little feel, relative comparative size. I tried my best to scale it to give a sense of the size. Of course, uh, Lunacod could cook along the surface, uh, so to speak, very different uh, kind of uh, mission. You'll also notice all these guys, short of maybe the LRV, um, you know, had plutonium or polonium sources. And so that's that really helps when you're out of the sun, but it also carries cost and complexity implications. And remember, we're we're trying to be a low-cost mission as well, just like Elcross was. And at the same time, we're going on a commercial ride. And uh, carrying things like um, fissionable material um, is a complexity that would drive costs and other things. So we're totally solar powered. And slide 22. So slide 22 is my last chart. And in there, if you guys could click on that link, even as a PDF, that link should be live. I'm hoping this works for you. If it doesn't, you can, uh, you know, do this afterwards. But I'm going to talk through what, what you're seeing in that video. So as you guys are all <clears throat> trying to do that, I'll try to make this useful even if you're not seeing it. But what you're looking at here in that still image and in the video <clears throat> is one of our earlier uh, rover test units. And it's got the correct wheels on there, at least the right size, and just the frame, right? It's a primitive. And we're out at Glen in their sink uh, chambers, their areas where they have really, really soft, fluffy uh, regular simulant. We also went up against their slope table, and if you're on the video right now, you're probably seeing an interesting gate 
by the rover, which is this crawling motion. This is one of the products that we can get out of the fact that we have such articulation of the rover. So not only do we have shoulder joints that go up and down and allow us to auto-level as we go over different terrains, which is turned off right now. You can see it's leaning to the left and leaning to the right. But it allows us to do this army man crawl or whatever you want to call it, turtle swim, um, that in testing that we've done in real environments, uh, analog environments uh, on the Earth, both at Ames and at Johnson, <clears throat> we have found that it can help us get out of the soft stuff. For those of you who are uh, downhill snow skiers, you know, when you get the really, really soft stuff and you find yourself sinking down to your knees as you're going downhill, it's really easy to uh, just keep sinking and, and, and have problems with that. For the rover, uh, if we sink all the way down to where the belly pan, as we call it, is sitting on the surface and we're just spinning our wheels, uh, we could be game over. But in this case, we actually found that we could have the rover all the way down to its belly in really soft sand, completely immersed, and and then in this case in regolith. And we were able to make it across different test analogs that have sunk most every other rover that's been put in there and crawl our way out by creating a left and right motion that is choreographed so that you're actually pulling with the wheels. And then you do it such a way that the back ones are pushing when the front ones are pulling, and then you just alternate back and forth, left and right. And we pulled ourselves right out of a really bad situation. We've done this many times. It's not fast. You saw if you were able to see the video, it's it's a it's a slog, but it also could very well be preventing a mission end in an area that no one's ever been before. There's hot debate, for example, on the PSRs, whether it'll be completely ice frozen and hard like glass, or it'll be the softest, downiest talc that we're having to navigate. And so we have to actually plan to be able to operate in either and anywhere in between. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. As always, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq.